Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. This week we're talking about stress from two different scientific perspectives. First, we'll try to better understand the stressors that may have led to a spike in observed suicide rates among people with autism. Then, we'll chat with a scientist who has helped reveal that the stressors experienced by ancestors could help bolster the immune response of future generations. The occupational therapist and the evolutionary biologist, that's Undisciplined, coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Each week on our program, we bring together two scientists from different fields of study, and we ask them about their recent research. Then we introduce them to one another. We never go into this knowing how our guests are going to connect their work and their lives, but come the end of the show, they almost always do. Joining us in studio is Ann Kirby, a New Jersey native who attended school in New Hampshire and North Carolina before heading west to the University of Utah. Here, she's an assistant professor in the Division of Occupational Therapy in the College of Health. Since 2014, she's racked up an impressive number of journal articles focused mainly on autistic youth, including a study published in January in the journal Autism Research, which examined the suicide risk among individuals with autism spectrum disorder, revealing that the risk of suicide in individuals with ASD has increased in recent years. Ann Kirby, thanks for joining us on Undisciplined. Thanks for having me. And joining us on the line from Penn State University is Gail McCormick. Since 2011, she's been involved in teams of researchers studying the fascinating evolutionary relationship between lizards and fire ants. And her most recent study in the Journal of Experimental Biology employed those two groups of animals to reveal that ancestors who were frequently exposed to stress can improve the immune response of future generations. Gail McCormick, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me as well. First up today, the occupational therapist. That's the band Days of the New, whose lead singer Travis Meek is one of the many intensely talented people with autism spectrum disorder. Meek has also been very public about the challenges he's faced in living with autism. Despite his musical success, in a 2015 interview, he described living with a feeling of extreme inadequacy and feeling as though it was impossible to do anything right. Those sorts of feelings are part of the larger and very complicated story of suicide risk among people with autism. And in her latest study, Ann Kirby shines some light on the problem. Her team's 20-year retrospective study found that the risk of suicide for individuals with autism has increased in recent years. And Kirby, I want to get to this really disconcerting finding, but I'd also like to understand what drives you to do this work. What made you want to focus so much of your research agenda on autism? I've been working with people who have an autism diagnosis um, really since I was in high school. I had an opportunity to work at a summer camp that had a lot of participants who had an autism diagnosis and over time found a real passion for work in that area and became an occupational therapist and then research in this area. So I've heard some reports indicating that autistic individuals have a higher risk of suicide to begin with, but your study found that for the first 15 years of the period you looked at, the relative risk of suicide between autistic and non-autistic people was similar. Were you surprised by that? Not entirely. We were concerned about some of those earlier years, but but did want to look at 
as much data as we could. Um, and so that 20 year period of time was what we were able to access. Autism as a diagnosis has changed over time. It's broadened and people in the community are getting better at diagnosing it. There's more diagnostic measures. There's more awareness in the community. Now when parents think their child might have autism, they talk to their doctor. Now doctors know more about it and might be able to do more referring. And so we've seen an increase in autism diagnosis itself. And so we think that some of those earlier years in the study might be reflecting that they're just wasn't as much awareness of autism. And so we don't know the scope of the problem as well in those earlier years, but there were cases in those earlier years. We have a better sense of the scope of the problem now in the most recent five years of the study. You saw a pretty significant spike in the suicide rate for people with autism in Utah where this study was focused. We did see a spike, but there's also been a growth in the in the general population. But people with autism in the last five years of our study had a slightly elevated risk, um, but particularly females with autism had a much more significant risk compared to females who don't have the diagnosis. What do we think might be happening there? There's a lot of speculation, I think, but I'll note that we found an increased risk in females who have the diagnosis, and a study from Sweden also found an increased risk for females. So I find it interesting that that we're seeing a similar pattern in in two totally different places. We don't entirely know what could be going on differently with females than males. Females generally tend to die from suicide less often than males, quite a bit less often. Females are also much less likely to be diagnosed with autism. You've seen this in this study from Utah. Uh, it seems to correlate with the study from Sweden. Is there other research active right now where we're looking into this? Do you know other research that correlates to this? So there's not any other that we know of real population-based research. So that's something that um, that our study is really bringing. But there are some other more convenient sample, community-based samples that do see high rates of suicidality among females who have an autism spectrum disorder. One thing that some researchers are looking into is something that's called sometimes camouflaging or masking. And so sometimes people who have an autism diagnosis, as you mentioned earlier, feel a little isolated from their communities and might want to try to hide some of their autistic kind of characteristics or just try to fit in and change their behavior to fit in. The term camouflaging or the term masking have been used, and there's some research that's emerging that suggests that females might be more likely to camouflage or mask their behaviors, and other research that shows that camouflaging might be more associated with suicidality or thoughts of suicide. I imagine that if you had to hide something about yourself for a really long time, and we see this, of course, with LGBT populations as well, that your risk of mental health consequences and suicidal ideation would, would increase. Right. Feeling like you can't be yourself definitely can have an impact on your identity and, and mental health. And also, I think it's extremely stressful and takes a lot of effort to sort of have that mask on, as people talk about. You're a researcher. You're also a practitioner. How does what you do in your research impact what you do when you're working with people? So right now I'm not seeing any clients, but I spend time with autistic adult, um, autistic youth, as well as parents of autistic teenagers. It's been interesting to me because some of the work that I do with teenagers and their parents is around 
helping them prepare for adulthood. And so we are trying to bring some more awareness about identity and self-acceptance and just mental health concerns into some of that work that we're doing with parents and, and youth because it is so important. But parents also and youth bring these things up as well even unprompted, parent will tell me their child doesn't have any friends. They'll even say, I think you might be suicidal. And so we're thinking about ways that we can support parents in in helping their child navigate these kind of difficult times. And adolescence can be a time where identity development and other things like that are really critical. Really, I think we need to do a lot of work to figure out what the best ways to support autistic youth and adults um, with mental health is. There's really not much known about what's going to be effective and most helpful. Do you feel like we're getting better? I think awareness is a is an important step towards improving care and improving um, people's quality of life. And so I think we're making some, some real headway there. People are becoming more aware of autism. People know people on the spectrum and, and understand what that is. There's some TV shows that have autistic characters, but I will note that rarely are those autistic characters female. And so that may be another factor contributing to some of the increased struggles in females who have the diagnosis. Well, and more research helps with awareness as well. So what's the next step in your research? One of the things I'm really excited about is I'm just starting to partner with some autistic adults who are really passionate about this topic. Right now, I'm working with two females who have attempted suicide in the past, who have an autism diagnosis, and who really care about research in this area. So I'm really excited to work with them and They're helping me develop research questions. One thing we didn't do in this study was look at any sort of attempt incidents. We were just looking at suicide deaths. So we want to expand the study to look at suicide attempts as well. That's Ann Kirby, whose recent study on suicide among individuals with autism spectrum disorder was published in January in the journal Autism Research. And there's someone I'd like you to meet. Can you stick around for a bit? Sure. Next up, the evolutionary biologist. And that is the Columbus, Ohio band 21 Pilots singing about the harsh transition from youth to adulthood, where, as they lament, now we're stressed out. But according to the research of my next guest, some stressors might be okay for the purpose of improving the lives of generations to come, at least when it comes to the rather ubiquitous fence lizards of the eastern United States. Gail McCormick, your study team looked at stress induced by fire ants, and that's something you've been interested in for quite a few years. What makes the relationship between fire ants and fence lizards such a good model for understanding the generational impacts of stress? Fence lizards occur across the southeastern United States, and as of the 1930s, so do fire ants, which are an invasive species here. So fire ants, if you've been to the south, you know that they bite and sting, which to you or me is pretty annoying, but to a lizard, it's a stressful experience, and it can break their skin, and that leaves them open to infection. So we have this interesting situation where in the southernmost states, we've got lizards that have been around fire ants for 30-some-odd generations that have been in this kind of high-stress environment. But in other areas in the South, fire ants haven't yet invaded. So we have some similar lizards, but 
they, they occur in low-stress environments. These kind of are the ancestors we're looking at. And we can look at descendants of these lizards. We bring them into the lab. We hatch the eggs, and we look at the little lizard babies, um, and we can then manipulate their stress environment in the lab. So we can look at the exposure of stress during their lifetime, but we can also consider the stress that their ancestors experienced. So you collect these pregnant females, they give birth, and then the young lizards are subjected to high and low stress environments in, in these study conditions. And when they reach a year of age, you check their immune function. And when you did that, what did you learn? So we found that lizards whose ancestors lived in low-stress environments had suppressed immune function when they were exposed to stress in early life. And so that's something we would expect. We frequently find that long-term stress suppresses immune function. So where your ancestors have low-stress environments, we see what we expect. But lizards whose ancestors lived in high-stress environments actually had a more robust immune response when exposed to stress early in their life. So the immune response to early life stress actually depends on the environment that your ancestors experienced. And I know you know, you know, generally that the fire ants came and, and they invaded areas where these lizards lived, you know, 60 or 70 years ago. But can we be more exact? Do we know how far back in the timeline that exposure to fire ants had to have happened for this generational effect to materialize? I mean, we can look at a map and see the, the patterns of invasions. I don't think we can put a number on after so many generations, now we can see this effect. So one of the things we don't know about this study is we're looking at ancestors. Well, really, we're looking at moms and also that carry a history. But we don't know if the effect comes from mom or if it comes from the population and more generations. And so getting at how this effect happens is something we'd like to look at more in the future. What do you think biologically is happening here? So you've got these lizards who can be attacked by fire ants really quite frequently. It could be a, a daily or more than daily experience. So if this frequent stressor that you encounter induces an immune response, we feel like it's probably a bad idea for lizards to suppress their immune function in response to that stress, as would typically occur. And so that's what we found. We see that lizards from these high-stress environments improve their immune response to stress, and that might help them deal with future attacks. It might help them deal with their persistent stressor that they encounter all the time. Do we know, is this a genetic effect? Is it an epigenetic effect? Could it be a transgenic effect? So we're not sure yet. That's definitely something we'd like to look at. As you mentioned, it could be epigenetics. It could be um, genetic, although based on what we're seeing, we might have some evidence that it's probably more some of this epigenetic or maternal effects. But one of the things we'd really like to look at is this idea of maternal effects. So moms can actually kind of transfer some immunological memory to their offspring, or moms can also behave differently. Maybe they allocate resources differently to their egg. Or maybe stressed out moms spend more time in hotter areas or colder areas, and maybe that affects their offspring. So looking at these maternal effects is definitely something that my colleagues and I are getting into. And your group has suggested that we could potentially see similar results in other organisms and potentially even humans. Where would you like to take this research next? I mean, lizards are obviously very different than humans. For one, they're ectotherms, so they can't regulate their temperature. Um, and that might affect how they allocate resources, especially to the immune system. But 
since you mentioned humans, we do know that there's some evidence of these effects through generations on humans. There's a study by Rachel Yehuda who looked at descendants of Holocaust survivors, and they actually have altered levels of stress hormones in their blood. So, I mean, making the leap from lizards to humans is a big one, but based on this other study and some other evidence out there, and what I think our work shows is that stress can have effects across generations. Whether or not it's going to look the same in humans is, is a big question. But if we don't consider these effects across generations, we may be missing a big part of the picture. One of the things that makes this research possible is the invasion of these fire ants. We tend to think of non-native species moving into areas where they didn't exist before as a bad thing. But at least for research, for biological research, it opens up a world of possibilities. Absolutely. We have this really unique ability to study invasion, to study stress, to look at these generational effects. You've been looking at the interaction, the interrelationship, the evolutionary relationship between fire ants and fence lizards for quite some time now. I'm wondering how you got turned on to this very specific area of research. For me, it was a matter of joining the right lab. Um, my PhD advisor, Tracy Langkilda, has been studying this fire ant and fence lizard system for quite a while. And I ended up joining her lab and was able to kind of come in on the stress side of things to figure out, well, we know these lizards are responding to these fire ants, but they're also stressful. What does that mean? And so that's where I came in. And you're not just a researcher, you're also a science communicator. How do you use your research background to help uh, inform what you do now for Penn State as a science communicator? I go out and talk to the researchers at Penn State and help them translate their research. And I think having a science background has really helped me um, prepare for interviews and to not be intimidated by their work. Just because I have a background in evolutionary biology doesn't mean I know anything about astronomy which I might be writing about, or physics or math. But I think having that background has made me comfortable talking to these researchers, and I think that's helped a lot, even though it's a completely different field. That's Gail McCormick, whose recent study in the Journal of Experimental Biology used fence lizards and fire ants to reveal that animals who are frequently exposed to stress might help improve the immune response of future generations. Gail, there's someone I'd like you to meet. Does that sound good? Sounds great. All right. Well, in that case, Gail, this is occupational therapist Ann Kirby. And Ann, this is evolutionary biologist Gail McCormick. Nice to meet you. Likewise. And you were listening in as I was chatting with Gail. Was there a question that you wish that I'd asked or a connection that you made to her research? I think I've had the opportunity to work at the University of Utah with some genetic researchers, though it's very much outside my field. Um, I've been trying not to be intimidated by by it, as you mentioned. Um, but we've been talking a little bit about DNA methylation, and that was a question that I had looking at your work and listening to you talk about this. Is uh, Honestly, I'm not super aware of, of how epigenetics and DNA methylation work, but is, is that something that is going on here possibly? Yeah, we definitely think that could be um, one explanation for why we're seeing what we're seeing. So epigenetics or this idea that a change to how your DNA is expressed during a lifetime that can be passed on to your offspring, that kind of change could definitely be something that's going on. We haven't exactly looked at that yet, 
as you kind of said, we would need to find some good collaborators to help us understand the genetics of it. I'm also wondering, you alluded to some potential social influences in terms of how the, the mother behaves. Are those things that you're thinking about as well, or did I misinterpret that? Yeah, definitely. So the idea of um, maternal effects, which we would include how the mom behaves or how she provisions her eggs, that's definitely something that we think is playing a role in the system. And we can't say it with this paper, but we definitely have some studies ongoing in my lab that hopefully can help answer that. And I think I've read that independent of the fact that we're now much more attuned to autism, that there's some suggested that rates of autism have risen in recent years. And when I think about Gail's work, which adds to this growing body of evidence that shows that the experiences of our ancestors can have a pretty profound impact on later generations, I wonder if that makes you wonder about the roots of the disorder that you study. I think that's a good question. It's kind of constant question in autism research, whether we're really seeing an increase in autism or if we're seeing an increase in diagnosis and awareness. And those are pretty hard to tease apart, especially because we don't have specific trusted biomarkers for autism. It's a diagnosis that's given based on behavior. So though there are some genes that people have found associated and some neurological structures and functions, it really is a diagnosis that's only given based on on how the, the person acts and how they're experiencing their everyday lives. And so it's hard to know whether we've seen an increase in autism over time or that increased awareness and, and identification. But because there is a perceived genetic influence, and scientists are pretty confident in that because we see it more common in families, siblings are much more likely to have autism if their other sibling does. Twins, it's even greater, as you would expect with something that has a genetic pattern. But I am not an expert in this area. (laughs) Gail, you were listening in as I was chatting with Anne. Was there a question you wish that I had asked or a connection that you made to her research? Yeah, there was one thing um, that Anne mentioned that kind of resonated with me. She mentioned that there's this kind of critical identity development period that happens during adolescence. And that struck a chord with me mostly because... One of the reasons we chose to look at early life stress in in lizards is because we know that this can be like a critical period. So we applied our stress treatments during early life, but if you were to translate to humans, that could be childhood or adolescence, these critical developmental periods. One thing I know from looking at background for my research is that in, in humans, stress and trauma in early life can also suppress immune function. It can affect cognitive performance and memory, um, and stress, your stress response. And so I think the idea of things happening during adolescence being critical is, is something that resonates with me as well. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And when we think about stress, I mentioned earlier about sort of masking and camouflaging and the kind of social stresses. I also was talking to an autistic woman yesterday who didn't receive um, her diagnosis until adolescence. And for her, getting the diagnosis was really helpful because before she had the diagnosis, she didn't know what was going on, why she felt different than other people. And she didn't really have a good explanation for some of the things that she was feeling and experiencing. And so 
that I think was a really stressful experience for her. And then when she got the diagnosis, it it helped her be able to de- develop more of a an ad- identity for herself. So it was interesting to hear her explain that that process. And yeah, it sounds like stress really does play a role, which is a connection between our research, I think. And it's an incredibly powerful role. It's a role that can impact people in their current lives, and and stress can have a really profound impact in generations to come. We know that stress can have immediate effects. We know that stress can have long-term effects within your lifetime. And, And as you mentioned, we're seeing now that stress can transcend generations as well. I will add that some of the genetics researchers I work with at the University of Utah have been looking at the genetics of suicide and how we see suicide have familial and ancestral patterns as well. And so I think the role of genetics and, and epigenetics around around suicide are another area that I think is, is starting to be explored, but really unknown. But I think the the role of stress and, and other impacts on these types of processes is important for future research. I think in both of your areas of study, there's still so much to be discovered. I want to thank you both for this conversation. Ann Kirby, thanks for joining us on Undisciplined. Thanks. And Gail McCormick, thank you. Thank you. You can listen to Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at So Undisciplined. We recorded today's show in the KCPW studios in Salt Lake City. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. <laughs>